Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Hi there, Una Mullally here, introducing Byline. Byline is a new bonus series from United Ireland where we speak to journalists working on important stories. We take a deep dive into those stories and the journalists' working processes and tackle how they brought the issue into the public sphere and the impact that it had. The COVID-19 pandemic has created a huge appetite for quality breaking news, reporting, and investigative journalism. But it has also caused advertising revenue to collapse, leaving many media outlets in precarious positions, not to mention the journalists working in and around those organisations. At a time when trust is at something of a low in traditional media, and where tech companies that participate in undermining democracy, promoting misinformation and disinformation, and benefiting from advertising that previously went to newspapers and other traditional media outlets, and where mainstream media outlets are often subjected to attacks from several quarters, we wanted to get back to the story and highlight the decent work and hard graft that also goes uncelebrated from journalists who rarely ask for credit. Byline is about good journalists doing the hard yards in the public interest. First up is a young reporter in the Irish Times, Jack Power, who has earned the respect of his colleagues and the industry for his diligence, tenacity and the seriousness with which he pursues stories. Jack is a reporter almost in the classic mould. Today, I'm going to be talking to him about his work investigating and reporting on the sexual abuse of children in scouting organisations in Ireland. Hello, Jack. How's it going? How's it going? Um, first of all, Jack, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, when did you become a journalist journalist? Uh, either semi-professionally or professionally? Yeah, so I've been working with the Irish Times as a news reporter for um, just over three years now. Uh, and I kind of came in from the Irish Times um, at a UCD. So I was uh, a dictator in politics in UCD. And I'd written for one of the college newspapers there, the, the College Tribune. And when I graduated, I took on um, the role as editor of the that student paper. And then pretty much... Straight after finishing, I think one or two weeks after I finished up in the uh, the college paper, uh, the Times took me on as a news reporter, which was which was uh, fantastic and kind of a, a seamless a transition as you can get from kind of coming out of college to um, you know kind of a national newspaper. So that's kind of where uh, my roots kind of lie. Mm. And um, what was it uh, about your reporting um, in UCD? Do you think that the Times saw a, a, a bright spark there? Yeah, so I think we kind of focused a lot on um, investigative work and investigating um, decisions taken by the college and how the college was responding to different things. Um, And we were able to um, 
kind of myself, we were able to break a few stories uh, that I then kind of pitched to the Irish Times. Uh, so I, during my year as editor of the student paper, I think we had two or three stories uh, that we, we run um, in, in UCD that the, the Irish Times also took off me. So I kind of had that relationship um, you, with the news editor in the Irish Times um, as a, a student journalist. So that, um, that kind of, I suppose, kind of connection uh, really helped then when the, the paper happened to be taking on a few um, new reporters uh, just as I was finishing up in the, the college paper. So I suppose mm. it was that kind of um, investigative streak that um, was able to kind of get my, my kind of foot in the door what kind of themes are you drawn to or, or subject matter in, in terms of the coverage that you've kind of get your teeth into? Yeah, I suppose the moment I've really been focusing a lot over the last year around kind of child protection issues and safeguarding issues. Um, my report at the moment looks at, at TUSLA, the Child and Family Agency, a lot and how in in various kind of cases and circumstances, children have been allowed fall through the cracks and um, the system has, has let them down and let them down badly. So I'm, I, I'm drawn a lot to, um, I suppose, places where people do fall through the cracks in the system, particularly vulnerable people. Um, and that, I suppose, is, is kind of seen a lot where, um, where it happened quite similar in the, the Scale in Ireland story, um, where you have a story where, Hundreds of children were um, sexually abused in, in the most horrible fashion by, by people they, they trusted and people that um, should have taken care of them, uh, their, their kind of scout leaders. So I've always been drawn to investigative stories and I suppose particular uh, stories where people might feel that they don't have a voice themselves. So mm. I've always, I suppose, um, tried to give those kind of people a voice and um, true reporting, even just through uh, highlighting their stories or highlighting their experience. You know, child protection stories, as you well know, um, have a, you know, a, a type of a legacy in Ireland that ends up, you know, impacting society hugely and, and changing it in some cases. And I guess we're getting into an era now where, you know, cohort of people who've taken one of the biggest hits uh, in terms of inconvenience, I suppose, and interruption uh, during the pandemic are children. And then you have all this kind of um, kite flying about the future of, of the Department of Children and Youth Affairs and stuff like that. So one assumes you'll be uh, quite busy in the next couple of years. Yeah, um, I, and I think that's, there's, I don't know, if it hasn't really received that much media attention. I remember doing a, a small piece at the start of the, the pandemic because they're, there's a cohort of children that would be um, in, you know, kind of very in home situations, which are very difficult, where there might be domestic violence issues between the parents, or there might be issues with substance abuse, uh, there might be issues with, with mental health problems. And often for those children, school would be several hours a day where, you know, they would have an element of sanctuary from their difficult home environments. But at the moment with all the schools being closed, you know, those children are, are in their home environments for for twenty four hours a day in um at those home environments there's an intense amount of pressure just with the like everyone's under everyone's more stressed with the pandemic, but but those kind of difficult family situations are, are under more strain um 
than usual. There's probably potentially more um, issues around substance abuse with, with more alcohol being taken. So I think we're potentially heading for um, a, a very serious and almost kind of depressing boom in serious child protection issues um, when we come out mm-hmm. the other end of this. Uh, and I think um, the state agencies like Tusla and um, the Department of Children have to be I suppose, really on the ball in terms of how we respond um, to that, I suppose, potential um, mushroom in um, cases or issues where children and families need additional support uh, when we come out of this. Because currently, as I understand it, Tusla are really only responding to emergency cases like the really um, the really, really severe cases. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, as you, as you kind of say, like it's it's especially important for people who, who can't naturally advocate for themselves. Um, I want to talk about what were kind of the main uh, subject matter today, which is your reporting on um, this ongoing story around um, child sexual abuse in scouting organisations. What is the genesis of this story in terms of how it entered the public domain? And when did you become aware of it and start reporting on it? Yeah, so I I was actually in the scouts myself as a um, as a as a kid. So I, I kind of have um, you know, really fond memories myself of you know making uh, loads of really good friends that I'm still friends with today. And um, so that's always kind of been a weird, um, I suppose, parallel to um, to reporting and investigating this story. The story first came to, um, I suppose public attention, it would have been in February 2018, um, when the Irish Times, uh, m- myself, we broke a front page story um, for the Irish Times that, that basically found that a confidential review into a uh, rape allegation between two adult um, scouting volunteers, that was the allegation was made in 2016 by a, um, by a young woman. And this confidential, a confidential review had been done in um, in 2017, and it had found that the handling of her allegation and how it had been responded to by Scouting Ireland was deeply flawed, and kind of exposed a series of cultural and um, policy issues with how Scouting Ireland responded to safeguarding issues, how Scouting Ireland. Um, how the culture in Scouting Ireland, um, you know, wasn't um, at times a safe place for children because the organisation was failing to respond to and handle allegations and safeguarding issues properly. So that was kind of, I suppose, the um, the, the genesis of the story in, in us um, getting um, this confidential review. And that was passed on to me um, almost kind of by chance, I'd written a um, a, a story about uh, charity aid workers, um, overseas aid workers who'd been uh, fired and let go for their jobs for sexual misconduct. So it was kind of a um, a small enough story. I think it was on the back of a, a broader scandal with um, involving Oxfam in Haiti. So on for that, I'd just emailed and kind of queried to several of the different Irish charities like Goal and Trocra, asking if they'd um, fired or let go any workers over sexual misconduct in the last five years. So I'd kind of written a small story that just said, um, you know, 28 workers have been 
fired over sexual misconduct. And on the back of that, I just got an email in my inbox um, to say that there's another organization you need to be looking into um, and that it was scouting Ireland. And on, on foot of that, um, a, kind of a source in Scouting Ireland that I'd made contact with passed me on this confidential report into how the organisation um, had really mishandled uh, the rape allegation and the board minutes of two kind of highly controversial meetings where they discussed it. So this was kind of the first um, expose or, or report that revealed that there were serious problems in Scouting Ireland and everything kind of tumbled out of that. Um, the organisation... What... what? Sorry, what what did that um, when you kind of got got your got your hands on, on on that particular thing? What did that raise for you in terms of you know red flags around culture, around process? Because clearly, you know, your nose would probably tell you, well, if this one thing was done badly, then I'm about to open a Pandora's box here. Yeah, I, I suppose reading it. Um, the report was the um, this report or review into the handling of the rape allegation was conducted by uh, Ian Elliott. So he's um, one of the preeminent kind of child protection or safeguarding experts in the on the island of Ireland. He um, he was the guy that kind of came in and really reformed the Catholic Church's approach to safeguarding and kind of audited how dioceses and um, religious organisations were. Um, were kind of setting up their safeguarding structures after all the the church scandals. So, so this is a guy whose name goes a long way in terms of what he says about child protection. You know, m- needs to make you sit up and listen. So when I saw some of the language that he was using in this review that he'd done, it set up. I think one one of the lines that stands out was when he said he when he first came on board to to do this review, which would have been in July two thousand and seventeen. He did not think Scouting Ireland was a safe organisation for young children. Um, and he, he caveated that to say that improvements had been made uh, since since he came on board. But that that line in particular, you know, really, I suppose, made the hair on the back of my neck stand up in terms of seeing that this wasn't just one issue with how one case had been mishandled. Um, what he was really striking at was a problem at the core culture of the organization in how it safeguarded young people in its care. Uh, so that mm. it, it kind of from right from the off, I kind of had a sense that this, um, it wasn't just going to be a flash in the pan and that this was going to, um, going to likely kind of snowball. But, but at the time, I think I'd only been in the job in the Irish times about a little more than a year. So it was definitely, you know, the biggest scoop I'd worked on. Uh, to date so I, I kind of I didn't um, you know there's a certain I didn't really have an experience of working on a, a story to that scale so I, I, in another kind of I didn't really know how how big it could be or would be or potentially if I just thought it was it was going to be more than it was mm. Um, and so how did how did the reporting and your own kind of investigation pan out from there like what was your next step with regards to what kind of picture you wanted to get basically of what was happening after that 
that line indicated something was deeply troubling was was at work. Yeah, so I suppose almost the the first story where we um you know we exposed the, the flawed handling of the rape allegation. I mean that that was nearly the easy bit um to some to some extent because we'd been passed on you know these explosive documents that we could um kind of comfortably stand over. After that, things almost got much more difficult because, um, you know, the organisation, it stopped, its board stopped sharing minutes. It stopped, um, it kind of essentially stopped putting things on paper. And so there was a series of board meetings and decisions taken where I would have to source, um, source and stand up the stories and the articles purely based on, um, uh, between different uh, sources who, who obviously for, for reasons of protecting their own um, positions didn't want to be named. So that was much more difficult. Like I, I remember calling every member of the board and I think about that, maybe the, the three thirds of them that did, did answer as soon as I said who I was, you know, Jack Power at the Irish Times, uh, the phone would just go dead. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting experience of at the start, obviously, the, the vast majority of the board, um, you know, didn't trust me at all. Didn't want anything to do with me, um, and would try to run run a mile when I when I got a hold of them. So there was a process there of, um, I, I suppose almost, uh, kind of proving myself to people in the organisation by continuing to report on the story that they mm. knew that what I was reporting was going to be accurate. That uh, how I was pursuing the story was going to be fair. And then in, you know, two months time when you'd ring the same board member that might have hung up on you straight away and you just say, well, I'm working on um, this aspect of the story now. I'm trying to stand up the details of this key meeting. And, you know, I know the details. I've, I've spoken to other people, but I just need confirmation from a third source. Um, you know, can you, can you say if I'm, you know, incorrect in my understanding of this at all? And then they might say, "Okay, well, look, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you a comment. I'm not gonna talk to you, but, but I can confirm that you know your your understanding of what went on at that meeting was correct." So I suppose from after the first um, kind of bombshell report, that kind of threw the organisation into um, a bit of a governance tailspin. Obviously, uh, Minister for Children, Captain Depone. Um, whose department funds Scouting Ireland to the um, the tune of about a million a, a year in kind of state grant, which was a key source of income. Obviously, she got involved. Um, the department had to know that you know it was giving significant funds to this organisation, and it wanted to know that it was safe and its governance and safeguarding was robust. So, Minister Zappone was taking an, um, um, kind of an active interest in the story. Uh, internally for the senior volunteers, including the, the chief scout, which is kind of effectively the the head of the, the volunteering arm of the organization. And um, these four senior volunteers had been implicated in the flawed handling of the, the rape allegation. So there was this, there was calls on them to resign kind of internally and initially they resisted those calls and they tried to hang on. And then um, ministers opponent said she was withholding funding to the youth organisation. And then after that, the four volunteers said they would step aside uh, pending uh, a barrister 
uh, coming in to do uh, kind of a further independent inquiry into their actions in the handling of the the rape allegation. So that's that's kind of how the story um, really started to take off. It, it kind of obviously snowballed from this um, from our initial um, report into a, a much wider uh, controversy at the the top of the organisation, which um, which resulted in four of its most senior officials um, effectively resigning. What kind of picture were you seeing um, be painted with regards to like moving beyond that initial kind of very serious um, rape allegation and how it was handled? What kind of things were you hearing about with regards to other potential allegations or... Yeah, and I suppose the, it would kind of almost have been, you know, slightly kind of a, a kind of a um, kind of a joke back in the day that you know all this um, you know kind of scout leaders are you'd, you'd have to watch out for them. There, um, there would have always kind of been, I suppose, um, maybe a kind of a suspicion around scouting Ireland. Just to, we'd had the scandals in the church, um, you know, we've had scandals with swimming coaches and stuff like that. Um, so there would have always been a fear that, oh, I wonder, um, was there any element of, of child abuse happening back in the, um, you know, back in the sixties or the eighties, because obviously the environment of, you know, a, a group of adult scout leaders taking, um, you know, a group of 30 or 40 young children off, you know, away from their parents, um, to, to camp out for uh, the weekend in, in Wicklow or wherever, but that, it, the, the, the environment obviously lends itself to somebody trying to use the movement to um, to abuse children because it's I suppose it's not the same as you know soccer or, ga- or rugby where the parents would bring them down on the, the Saturday um, morning and then you know they'd stand by the, the side of the pitch and, and they'd watch whoever it is little little Johnny playing his um, playing his gar playing his hurling. And then they take them home. There's the element of the remove from the the parents uh, obviously pose that kind of risk. So there was always a, I suppose, a slightly an underlying suspicion. And what really, um, I suppose, turned me onto the the trail that you know there was an issue with with how past child protection issues had been handled was a, kind of a line in um, another one of Ian Elliott's. Um, reports I think it was a smaller um, report to the board around the same time of his review of the, the rape allegation and it just said that he'd gone back over several um, past case files and what he'd found had, um, had also kind of deeply troubled him that um, cases hadn't been responded to properly there had been um, instances where you know, senior volunteers had put pressure on staff who are managing child protection cases which would be you know allegations of child abuse put pressure on the staff managing them um, basically to, to lobby in favour of the the scout leader who was facing the, the allegation of, of child abuse so that from the start um, made me realise that there was obviously the potential uh, for past cases of um, and I suppose more more serious cases of of child sexual abuse to have been mishandled by by the organisation as well. 
but that kind of side of it, I suppose, lay dormant in the wider story for the better part of a year. I mean, the for the, the guts of 2018, you know, most of the pieces that I was focusing on and writing on were the kind of the blow by blow in the fallout of the handling of the rape allegation, issues around the four senior volunteers stepping aside, issues around the opponents suspending their state funding. Um, Gillian Van Turnout, former senator, was brought in to um, conduct kind of a, a review or report into the organization's culture, which she found to be, I think her final report said it was a dysfunctional culture um, and a lack of transparency and a blind loyalty to senior figures had um, allowed safeguarding failings to perpetrate in the organization. Uh, and so that was kind of all playing out. Um, and at the same time, you had people within Scouting Ireland who were vigorously lobbying on behalf of the four senior volunteers who'd stepped aside. Um, so they had a lot of fervent supporters in the organization who kind of blamed the staff, who blamed the chief executive, John Lawler, and I suppose tried to say that he had thrown the four under the bus. So there was a, a period of a few months where like, the organization was really tearing strips off itself internally. Um, and so I suppose my job as well was to try and um, report that as, as much as possible. And kind of while all that was playing out in the media, what was happening inside was Ian Elliott, the, the guy who'd done the initial review of the handling of the rape allegation, he had been working on um, a wider review of past cases. And while the organization's um, kind of past case files of um, of child abuse, I suppose there wasn't really much there. There wasn't this, you know, um, massive archive of, of files, of hundreds of files that um, you'd simply have to walk down to the, the basement in their headquarters to kind of go through and find um this wasn't locked away in in large hill their headquarters for years and it only took somebody opening the filing cabinet to to bring it to light to light um what began to happen as um and i suppose for a long time i was really the only one in the media reporting on this as you know the um, kind of current controversy was playing out in the the media and kind of increased public scrutiny of the organization survivors of child abuse in from the the 60s the the 80s the 90s they began to contact the organization to say um well look i know there's this current issue with with scouting ireland i i want to disclose that um you know i have some information i was i was abused by my scout leader in the past and these people began to come forward in increasing numbers uh, and what Ian Elliott was garnering over a period of months in 2018 was a picture of um, essentially um, massive historic child abuse that had occurred in um, legacy scouting organisations. So Scouting Ireland was formed in 2004 um, from a merger of the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and the Scout Association of Ireland. So there were kind of two separate strains that, that came together in 2004. So what, what was kind of an unfolding was this picture of historical child abuse that in many cases 
Scouting Ireland, I suppose, had no records of. Um, there was you know several allegations being made against some of the most you know former senior people in those organisations um, that Scouting Ireland had absolutely no records of. And I suppose we've subsequently come to realise they had no records of it because um, because either the records were weren't taken in the first place or or the files um, I suppose went missing along the way. So this, I suppose, the the historical abuse scandal, that side of the story, uh, came to light in it was November two thousand and uh, two thousand and eighteen. I think it was the 21st of November. Uh, the Scouting Ireland were due to appear before an Oireachtas committee. And effectively the month before, Ian Elliott had sat down with the um, with a new board that had been elected as kind of a part of a governance overhaul to kind of draw a line under the past controversies and kind of move forward. After this new board were elected in October, Ian Elliott sat down with them and said, look, um, this is what I've found. This is what um, picture has been painted to me by increasing numbers of people who were abused in the past uh, and information they've provided me. And so this you know, was effectively a bombshell. Um, much of the board thought, you know, they would be grappling with um, the kind of the hangover or the overhang of these kind of infighting and governance spats yeah. with the current organisation. And um, you know, at this meeting, I think it was on the 10th of October, they they came to realise that, you know, what they'd really be grappling with was a massive historical child abuse scandal. Uh, mm. And all these people sitting in a room, they would have been people that have you know, spent, their, dedicated their lives as, you know, scout leaders and, you know, most of them would probably have kids in the organization and um, like they would all have predominantly, you know, fantastic experiences with the organization. So this was a, a massive, a massive kind of hammer blow. And, you know, they, they took the decision to, to disclose this to the public um, at the Oireachtas committee hearing the next month. So I remember sitting down in the, the kind of the press gallery of the Oireachtas committee and I think it was actually Zappone that you know made the announcement. They'd obviously told um, Minister Zappone, look, we're going to be disclosing this. So um, she, I think she took the view that she wanted to be the one to, um, I suppose, the one to, um, one to inform people. So I remember uh, the, all the, the various um, uh, spokes, spokespeople for, for children from Labour and Fianna Fáil and, and different TDs and senators were, were sitting on one side of the Oireachtas committee and Zappone was on the other and she um, dropped dropped the massive news that, you know, Scouting in Ireland, this review by Ian Elliott had identified, uh, I think it was 108 um, past uh, victims of alleged child abuse and 71 perpetrators. Um, wow. I mean, that was, that was huge. That itself then... I suppose kind of really was the um, was the kind of spark that that fueled um, that, that fueled this kind of scandal. Uh, from there, you know, there was kind of a, a spotlight moment where Scouting in Ireland set up a helpline, uh, and the phones just started ringing nonstop. They had to corral 
um, extra staff to to man this this helpline for for other survivors. And within three weeks, the number of uh, survivors of past abuse that the organisation was aware of had uh, tripled from uh, one hundred and seven to uh, to three hundred uh, three hundred and thirteen. So I suppose that's that really gives an indication of um, that this had been lurking just beneath the surface, I suppose, where people for decades had been silently living with this, um, you know, this, this horrendous thing that had happened to them and never felt that they could um, speak about it. And then, how did you, sorry, Jack, how did yeah. you feel like around that time? Because, you know, it had been lurking beneath the surface um, and you happened to have a, you know, uh, a, a shovel that just dug something up that then began to kind of s- spread somewhat. And, you know, I suppose is that like um, balance between, you know, really kind of going after a story and wanting things to emerge uh you know, that you can follow, that you feel, you know, maybe instinctively are there, you know, there's a reason that you're kind of pursuing this. And at the same time, um, you know, it can be very uh, scary when the things that you suspect um, snap into focus, because all of a sudden, you know, your notebooks, your work on this, it becomes somewhat radioactive, like that this, this really started to, to become another, you know, as you say, like massive um, historical abuse scandal, which we have, obviously, we know what that, you know, looks like, sounds like, feels like, um, and how that impacts our society. How are you feeling as this was cascading? Yeah, I suppose it was this kind of weird, perverse vindication where you, you have this kind of instinct that there is something like this um, kind of bubbling beneath the surface and then the I suppose it's almost depressing to see it come to pass you know you might I'm I'm slightly a bit cynical you know if if you were an optimist you might think or you might be hoping that well look it's um, you know there might be some elements of past wrongdoing but um, but hopefully it won't be on anything like a the massive scale that it, it, it came to evidently be. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of this weird mix of, you know, obviously it, it kind of vindicated, um, you know, I suppose the, the Irish times investigation, which like during the early months, you know, we were, we were receiving a lot of flack from people in scale in Ireland who are saying, and particularly me, like I regularly got, um, you know, sustained, you know, abuse on Twitter from, people in the, the skating movement to say, oh, you know, this this young fella's just looking to um, you know, torch a um a brilliant organization to to make his name or um, you know, he's just looking to, to sell newspapers. And I mean the Irish Times, you know, it, it really um you know, as a young journalist, it really backed me on this story. Um in the sense I mean the first the very first story was was splashed on the front page. And I mean I think I've probably written um, probably twenty to thirty front page stories on this. Uh, you know, over the two year period, so it really, um, you know, it kind of it's it put it put a shoulder to the wheel and saying, you know, we're going to pursue this story and not just in a way that, you know, where we'll, you know, have the follow up articles, you know, on inside on page five. Like if there's a significant 
development in this story like it, it, it's going on the front page so mm. now you know I, I suppose the the paper was vindicated as well in its investigation and in sticking by its investigation that you know this wasn't us just muckraking or us trying to you know torture an organization that you know thousands of young people today have get great enjoyment and fulfillment from you know this was this is something that we felt like we had to follow through on and we had to bottom out Mm. I suppose how, that, yeah. One sec, Jack. How? I mean, obviously, the 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 Times isn't known for sensationalism, which is uh, uh, why it's a good paper for it to work for. How? Just for context for listeners, how old were you when that um, first kind of front page story broke? So I think I would have been twenty twenty two. Right. Yeah. Twenty two. Uh, I'm twenty twenty five now. Um. So maybe twenty two, twenty three. So mm. I, I would have been the youngest. Um. The youngest reporter in the newsroom by probably by a few years still. As this um, progressed, there was then this kind of tension between um, calls for a state investigation or the prospect of that kind of um, statutory inquiry or something that versus criminal cases that that may have emerged or may be emerging from this. What was that tension or am I imposing imposing a kind of attention on that? No, not at all. I, I suppose you know once this you know really started to once we started to see the extent of this, you know there were calls for you know obviously we've had previous inquiries into the um, religious run institutions and you know the current commission of investigation into mother and baby homes. So there was that question of you know will there need to be um, you know, kind of a state-footed inquiry to understand um, what went on here. I suppose, obviously, with, with Skelly in Ireland, it, it, it's slightly different in the fact that there was very little to no state involvement in the organisation. So, for example, with the religious-run institutions, you know, they would have been, you know, effectively contracted to um, to run schools on behalf of the state. Mm. So yeah. the state was always liable there, similar with, with, with mother and baby homes. So there wasn't that direct link, I suppose, between the organisation and the state where I suppose a statutory inquiry would be needed to find out, well, on what element of liability um, is the state responsible for? So there was always a little yeah, beyond bit... beyond funding or... Yeah, so there was always a little bit of a remove, I suppose, there and... I suppose that kind of debate is only really going to happen um, now. What kind of happened after the initial revelations of the, the abuse was in Elliot was kind of contracted to say, okay, look, this is this is the picture you've kind of found to date. We need you to, Skeleton Ireland commissioned him to effectively complete uh, and compile a kind of a final full report on the extent of this scandal. So that was published last Thursday. Um, and Ian had been working on that, um, you know, kind of effectively since you know mid two thousand and eighteen. So that really, and obviously, it got a lot of coverage uh, or kind of a fair bit of coverage last week. So I suppose that provided the kind of clearest picture as to what went on in those legacy organisations. And I mean, the the report was um, was stark reading. I mean, it said that you know one of the organisations was seriously dysfunctional and its leadership had been dominated by sex offenders for years you know there was a 
a kind of a consistent and a systematic failure to keep records around child abuse and sex offenders operated in groups at the top levels of both organizations and allowed them to effectively prevent other alleged sex offenders being disciplined or being removed from the organizations. Um, so, and I think one of the most stark, uh, I suppose, kind of words that the report used that really stuck stuck out for me was, Ian Elliott said, effectively, child sexual abuse was tolerated at the top levels um, of these legacy organizations for, for decades. And, you know, we now know there's 356 uh, known uh, survivors of child sexual abuse and 275 alleged perpetrators of the abuse who, who preyed on children in the organizations and, and used the scouting movement to, to abuse children. So from that final report on Thursday, we kind of now have the sense of the, the full breadth of the culture that push self-interest and cronyism and ego ahead of safeguarding children. And, um, and I suppose now the question will turn to what is the state going to do? What yeah. are the Gardaí going to do? Um, I know there's, there's one case down at Cork that the Gardaí are kind of fair, at a fairly advanced stage of um, prosecuting and there's kind of several other, other cases. Obviously, the vast majority of these 275 alleged perpetrators of abuse, the, the, the significant amount of them are dead at this stage. Um the ones that aren't would be uh, would be very old. I mean, the abuse kind of took place primarily between the nineteen sixties and the nineteen nineties. Um, I mean, I mean, the nineteen nineties that's that's not too far, um, that's not too far in Ireland's uh, in Ireland's past. So, what does happen next then? Um, what are the current conversations happening within the organisation within the department? Um, you know, kind of how, where is the intersection of the organisation, the criminal investigations and the political, you know, temperature of this um, scandal? Yeah, I mean, on the political temperature, I, I, um, I know Minister Zappone and Tishok Lirvarker have previously said that, you know, they would consider some kind of statutory inquiry. They said that late last year. Um, that effectively has kind of been that kind of consideration had been put on pause until Ian Elliott's final report was published to to kind of get a sense of what that uncovered. I, my own sense is that, um, you know, within government circles, there's a definite cooling off against um, announcing any kind of statutory inquiry, primarily based on concerns that um, it mightn't be able to uncover significantly more information than Ian's report did. Um, but obviously one of the issues with the with you know large statutory inquiries like, like the Ryan report, the Commission of Investigation into into child sexual abuse in the in religious institutions is that you know it can take years, um, you know, up to a decade. It can cost millions. Um, you know, lawyers are heavily involved and at the end of the day the outcome mightn't be um, satisfactory for survivors. I mean, we may never know the extent and how this was allowed to take place. 
Um, obviously, one of the things that Ian Elliott report, um, kind of cited was, a, you know, kind of a, a, a total failure to keep records um, and that senior volunteers, some of who were um, facing allegations of abuse themselves, kind of kept case files and records around child abuse in their homes. And a lot of that material was never you know, returned to, to scout in Ireland, obviously. So mm. there's not kind of a massive, um, I suppose, archive of case files into how and records and correspondence into how, um, you know, abuse allegations have been handled and responded to at that bedrock of documentation, which may have been, which may have existed, um, you know, between church dioceses or between different re- residential religious run institutions like that just doesn't exist in this case. So, so it'd be all kind of testimony lad, really. I think so. That's, that's what my sense is that it, a lot of it is information provided by um, survivors, information provided by other people in interviewed, such as uh, former volunteers, former staff members of uh, their kind of recollections. So there isn't this bedrock of, um, you know, documentation and evidence that a statutory inquiry would be able to really sink its teeth into. Um, but at the same time, like Ian's report, you know, relied on people um, coming forward and, you know, telling him uh, the truth. It, it wasn't on a statutory footing. Um, he didn't have any powers of compatibility or anything like that. And there was a telling line towards the end of his report that actually he said when interviewing some people, he felt that they knew more, but they didn't see fit to share it in this process. Right. Um, so there, there would be, I think, a lot of scope for a statutory inquiry there to come in. And I, I suppose really, really attempt to, um, you know, follow on from in the report and, and uncover more. Uh, mm. And also I think, you know, with a lot of people, particularly survivors, maybe who haven't disclosed what happened to them as children to date, maybe they very likely weren't aware that Ian Elliott was conducting this report over the last year. I mean, apart yeah. from, you know, kind of various lines in, in articles I wrote, you know, towards the end of the piece or whatever, it, it wasn't actually well publicised. So, you know, there is the, um, I suppose, effect of when you launch a statutory inquiry, that, you know, kind of significant move in itself probably shakes a lot of things loose from from cupboards, probably uh, maybe incentivises people who may still, um, you know, be holding files from their time to really, you know, I suppose come forward with them or, you know, survivors themselves who up to this point still haven't felt um, like they can share their story to also kind of come forward and speak. So I, I think you can't underestimate, um, I suppose, the the almost kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, a statutory inquiry, um, when it's launched, kind of has that effect to um, to kind of bring other things out of the woodwork. Yeah. You know, I know that you're not kind of prone to, to speculation or, or anything like that, but one of the things that I think people feel when these um, stories or scandals emerge is that they share a lot of characteristics um, 
you know, even in, in, in countries that are very far away from each other, let's say there's like, you know, access to, um, young people in an organization uh, or orbiting that organization. There is a lack of transparency, accountability and due process with regards to how, um, you know, authority figures within an organization don't really seem to have um, many kind of checks happening on them. Um, And then there's, you know, the predatory aspect of it. Yet I always repeatedly go back to wondering, um, because it's very difficult to to kind of put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is sexually abusing children, but you have to try and kind of comprehend the incomprehensible is like, is this something where, is this a case where people gravitate towards an organization because it presents them with an opportunity to perpetrate crimes? Or is there something in a culture or, or of an organization that um, ends up creating this kind of cascade of behavior that escalates in seriousness and grimness matched with perhaps one or two, you know, kind of career sex offenders who um, somehow neutralize the seriousness of the behavior by virtue of it becoming more common. Like from your grasping of this story and and the very kind of 360 uh, view that you have of it, like, can you cast any aspersions of or, or any kind of light on why the why aspect, I suppose, is always left kind of dangling when it comes to these sexual abuse scandals. Yeah. yeah. And I think one thing I, like I read, like Australia um, a few years ago launched a kind of a, a massive inquiry into into child abuse in, in society that kind of, yeah. that um, I think it, it kind of touched on it was the most far-reaching inquiry into child abuse in the world today where you know, it went through kind of schools, it went through organisations like Scouts Australia, it went through um, all different facets of society. And it also um, commissioned a lot of research. So reading some of that research, I think one of the things that's important, because you know, we always kind of think you know, when we're reading some of this and we're looking back, we think like, well, how would... You know, just the ordinary members, the ordinary, you know, scout leader who, you know, would find, you know, child sex abuse totally abhorrent at the time. You know, how would they not know that this this guy was operating in their troop for years? And one thing that I think it's important to um, remember is, is sex offenders and uh, child sex abusers, they groom children to obviously... Um, to control the child, to try and um, make the child feel that what's happening to them, um, that they can't tell anyone. But they also groom the adults around them. And in a particular way that when the adults around them might see that individual taking a child into a separate room or having the child sleep in their tent, they've groomed them to such an extent that the adult almost doesn't recognise that as a red flag. So I think that's, I suppose, one important point to make around how these people operate. I think as well, what happened in, in from my experience in reporting on the, the scouting movement is there was this confluence of, of those two things that you described, that people you know, with a sexual interest in children 
gravitated into the movement in the same way that they um, you might simply their their nature is to gravitate towards organizations um, or institutions or careers where they would have access to children. So they gravitated towards you know movements like this in the same way that um, you know they they may very male. Uh, you know, kind of gravitated towards the priesthood or towards becoming um, teachers or swimming coaches or GA coaches or whatever it is. And they gravitate towards these institutions and organizations. And when that organization doesn't have an effective culture to stop them and weed them out and prevent them operating, what we saw with the scouting movement was that they can effectively go on to abuse children with impunity for decades. Um, so I think it's the confluence of the two of abusers gravitating towards places where they will have access to children and also the failure, whether it's a, a sense of um, almost that, you know, this kind of thing couldn't happen here. And also that w- one of the other aspects that Elliot's report uncovered was that there was a, much like the church, a preoccupation with protecting the reputation of the movement, Mm -hmm. uh, the Audi movement. So when abuse cases and allegations did surface in the 80s and the 90s, the instinct was to go to the um, alleged abuser and effectively ask him to resign and then say no more about it. Uh, But in many cases, that individual would then simply go on to join another scout troop or would simply go on to move to the other um, scouting organization at the time, the move from the Catholic Boy Scouts to the Scout Association of Ireland. And because there was this um, culture of immersia and secrecy and protecting the movement, that it effectively allowed them to do that um, because they were never held to account. Uh, And even in some cases, they weren't even removed and they were simply told, and it was known that you better keep an eye on him at a camping trip because he's a known mm-hmm. sex offender. Um, you know, when when we when you say it like that, it just sounds bizarre. Um, but that's that's effectively the the culture that operated at the time that the interests of young people and care and protection of young people were often put um, very far behind you know, people's reputations and the reputation of the movement itself. Jack, it's an extraordinarily important story. It's a very serious story. Um, and your work on it has been really, really fantastic. Um, and you should be very, very proud of that, as I'm sure you are. Um, and, and of course, I would imagine that it will be ongoing as well. Um, so before you go, though, uh, and thanks so much for sharing that kind of forensic detail with us. It's really, really informative. Um, and I think people will will kind of have a really good grasp of, of what the actual process of was the, the story unfolding and also your own reporting on it. Um, before you go, you're very busy at the moment. You're doing some great work um, with Carswell in the, in the Times about the um, care home, nursing home aspect um, of uh, COVID. Um, how are you feeling at the moment and, and what are you working on this week? Yeah, so I suppose obviously last week with the the Scouting Ireland report, I was kind of shifted onto that for um, which was kind of hectic. But I suppose at the moment, most of my reporting 
um, everything, everyone has kind of been been diverted to to coronavirus. So, kind of as you said, it's um, myself and Simon Carlson and the Times have kind of really just um, been the two to hone in for the paper on uh, on kind of care homes and obviously how um, you know how the virus got into nursing homes. I mean, I was um, questioning Tony Holohan on that yesterday at the the Daily Briefing as to you know how what what did we miss here um, and you know why was the virus um, able to get into nursing homes? And obviously when it did in these large congregated settings, it just spread like wildfire through, um, through several of the homes um, with, with devastating consequences. Uh, so I, I think in following that, that story, I think we've reached a plateau on nursing homes in relation to COVID-19. Um, the worst, some of the um, nursing homes that were worst hit in terms of uh, St. Mary's, a home in Phoenix Park, and Delgan House yeah. in Dundalk. I mean, they seem to have stabilised in, in the last few weeks. So it, it seemed to get to a point where it spread almost throughout the entire home. And then obviously, because we're dealing with, you know, very old, plenty frail, vulnerable people, we saw high fatality rates, you know, over 20 in, in both cases. Um, but now it's kind of tapering off. I think one of the, um, obviously, one of the issues will be in as we lift the lockdown, as people, as we lift visitor restrictions on nursing homes or care homes for people with disabilities or um, mental health institutions, um, as we allow things to start to return to normal, that the potential will be there for, I think, a second wave in those different residential institutions. And obviously, like, direct provision we've seen uh, has had massive, massive um, problems with outbreaks and, and clusters. So I think it's, we've kind of come through the other side, I suppose, of, of the first wave. But one of the key things will be if we haven't learned the lessons of why we fell short uh, the first time, that, I mean, there's definitely scope for, you know, the viruses to, to get back in and 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 kind of affect these vulnerable congregated settings um, a, a second time. Which, so I think that will be mm. one of the things that um, I, I suppose Nefesh and the government and, you know, the HSC and, 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 and the media will have to kind of keep our eye on. And that's certainly something kind of myself and Simon Carswell will be focusing on um, in kind of keeping... Uh, keeping a check on and, um, and reporting on. Well, we'll continue to uh, read your work, Jack. Um, really, really great stuff. And thanks so much for taking the time out. I know it's a very busy time, but keep up the great work and uh, hopefully see you in real life soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Mel. 